0: The following sermon was delivered on December 13, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr. preached this sermon entitled Women in the Life of the Church on 1 Timothy 2, 9-15. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Every organization, every institution, uh, every group of people that are working together in any supposed common cause must have an authority structure. In the military, the um, sailors need to obey their officers. In the army, the servants obey uh, their officers. Uh, In a business, it's very important that uh, employees obey management that uh, workers in the factory obey a foreman. Now, when that is not going on, we often refer to that as mutiny. The term came from the military, where there would be organized mutinies on ship or in a military camp. But we've used the same thing in office places or various institutions where people resent the authority, perhaps the authority has been abused, and they work behind the scenes to undermine that authority to usurp that authority, even to take it for themselves. but We also have an authority structure in our homes and in our churches. And it is also equally important for our homes and churches will never function well. We do not function according to the God designed authority structure. I don't think I need to point out to any of you here this afternoon That there is an overturning, both in the family and in the church, of God's authority structure. There is really a mutiny that is taking place uh, in the family and in the church. And we particularly began to address this last, or two weeks ago now, as we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, uh, Paul's instruction to men. What we saw, beginning actually with verse 1 of Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, is that God is laying out the the function of the church, the internal operations of the church uh, through um, corporate worship, through her attitude with respect to the lost in the world, uh, and then particularly to the role of men in the church as he sets that out very briefly but quite succinctly in verse 9, that men who have been appointed by Christ are to be those that lead the church, not only in her prayers, but in every act of worship. But now we come to a whole half of this chapter that is devoted to women. We're verse in verses 9 through 15. Paul is dealing now with women in the church. Now, we wonder why Paul, one verse for men in this particular area, uh, many other places, Paul, obviously, as we simply read in Titus, gives a good bit of instruction to, to all the various people in the church. But why the corporate life of the church, the worship of the church, why is it there's so much attention here to women? Well, there's two or three reasons. One is that simply the Old Testament has laid out clearly already the male authority structure in the church. with the prophets, priests, and kings appointed by God, these very offices fulfilled in Christ, are now being carried over into the life of the congregation. but We also have to realize that Paul was dealing uh, with a culture in the Gentile areas where there were a lot of misconceptions about uh, the behavior and the role of women. And so Paul is is teaching here, he's pushing back so to speak, because there's a danger and a tendency of the culture to creep into the church. Does that not sound familiar? Is that not what I said two weeks ago is happening? We want to be relevant. We want to be able to speak to our neighbors about Christ. And so if we really um, have these old-fashioned ideas about roles of men and women and family and church in particular, well, people won't listen to us. People will be... Offended. And so the church, trying to be relevant, is overthrowing the structures that Christ has appointed. And we saw that two weeks ago with respect to role of women in public worship. They're not to lead in prayer. They're not to read scripture. Uh, they're not to um, be taking up uh, the offering, administering communion. Uh, and as we'll see even more tonight, these are acts of authority that God appointed men are to form. So tonight we look here at what Paul says about uh, women in the church. and we see that women in the church are to develop a godly character in, and as I put it here, are uh, as they learn submission and serve as nurturers. Women in the church are to develop godly character as they learn submission and serve as nurturers. So we'll consider these two things. We're going to consider the character of the godly woman and the role of the godly woman. Verses 9 through 11, Paul directs our attention to uh, the character of the godly woman by considering both her external deportment, our conduct, and the heart uh, that is to guide her conduct are in which her character is being developed, but begins dealing with her external deportment, actually how she behaves and how she dresses. Verse nine, he says, "Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing." Here's a summary statement that he will then develop both positively and negatively, but he lays out the principle here that women are to adorn themselves with uh, proper adorning. We actually have in the Greek a play on words here. So adorn themselves with proper adorning. Now before we unpack that, I want you to notice the structure. Paul begins with likewise, I, and then in your Bible, probably as in mine, want is in italics, which means it's been supplied. That's because Paul uses likewise when he develops a series of principles where he's continuing on now with a different class. So, for example, um, in dealing with elders, he then goes to deacons. He says likewise. He deals with the wives of officers. He says likewise. He's making his way through there. So, by likewise, he's coming now to the second part of his dealing with people in the church. Now, the reason that we supply the word I want is that it takes us back to verse 8, therefore I want. And I explained that to you two weeks ago that when you have this word want followed by a, an infinitive like to pray, it is an apostolic commandment. So he says, I want men to pray. Here, I want women to adorn themselves. It's the same grammatical form as to pray. And so it's the continued apostolic commandment. You see that. He puts out the principle that women in their dress, their outward conduct, are to do so in such a way that expresses uh, reverence, that expresses dignity, that uh, uh, is dress suitable for their calling. Now, he's particularly, not exclusively in this section, but particularly dealing with corporate worship. And I just, again, have to keep pounding this drum Uh, there is appropriate and there is inappropriate dress anywhere, but more particularly, there is appropriate and inappropriate dress as we come into the presence of God to worship him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are worshiping in the presence of angels. Or Psalm 100, we actually come into the throne room of God in our worship. Is there not a dress that is more appropriate for coming to the presence of the holy, sovereign, Glorious, majestic, triune God before whom angels veil their eyes. And yet we become so casual in our approach to dress in church, so informal. So, as Paul addresses women about the seriousness of how they dress in corporate worship, of course, it applies to all of us who will come into God's presence. But he unpacks then. And what he means by adorning themselves with proper clothing or adorning. Positively, says, to be in their dress modest and discreet. Modest and discreet. Now, we all know what modesty means, and Paul did as well. Um, he's talking about dressing in a way that does not wrongly draw uh, attention to yourself with respect to Um, your body. But a dress that is chaste, a dress that is fit for the presence of God, thus it would be fit for the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. I find it very interesting that he had to address that in a pagan culture 2,000 years ago, and we have to keep addressing it in the church today. Um, But women who go out uh, with uh, bare backs or exclosed cleavage or skirts halfway up their thighs or their midriffs showing, all of that is contrary, but we'll just say it's immodest. It's contrary to the chastity of the Bible. I marvel that fathers would allow their daughters to go out in public dressed in that way. I marvel all the more that husbands have no more jealousy than to allow their wives to go out and be seen by men in a way they should only be seen by their husbands. It's a problem. It's a problem today in the church. You can hardly go to a church today and and not have to avert your eyes because there's women there that are dressed immodestly. And I assure you that as we seek to develop a congregation here that we will seek God's grace that um, the, the women, and they'll teach the girls that we uh, want to dress modestly. Now, the second word here is discreetly. Now, What does that have to do with with uh, modesty? Well, with discernment. Now, part of that is, and, and I interact at times with young ladies and and either they'll complain about friends who say this or they themselves say, well, it's not our fault. It's you men who have uh, dirty thoughts. We shouldn't have to change because of your thoughts, well, see, that's not being very discreet, is it? It's being naive. It is a refusal to recognize the facts of how God has wired men and women, and that they are tempting their brothers to sin or their fathers um, in dressing in this way. And even though, yes, men are responsible to be like Job, to make a covenant with our eyes, still. Women must recognize that they bear responsibility in this. They must not be naive. And of course, for every one godly man they're around, there are hundreds of ungodly men. What are you doing to them? You expect them also to govern their thoughts around you. And what are you saying? What are you saying to a man when you dress that way? So there's lack of wisdom there is what Paul is getting at. I also think this discretion means that uh, a woman doesn't simply run after every fad that there is. uh, Because the fads often lead her to dress in an improper manner or lead her to dress in a manner that would not be proper for church. And so it's good to dress well. It's good to have fine clothes according to your budget and your lifestyle. But you also have to think about these things. There's a, a Coach Saban, Nick Saban commercial for Regent Bank and there's a girl about to buy this $300 dress and he's sitting by her like her father. He says, now think about this. How many times do you wear that dress? Maybe three. And that'll be it. But you want it for the prom or you want it for this or that. Or then we will wear such things. I mean, we can also wear not just immodest dress but improper dress to church. And so I've seen Girls come to church in their prom dresses. After all, I can only wear them a couple of times. I might as well get the, the most out of it. where to use discretion, not to chase after fads. Why well, I've always encouraged men to dress in traditional clothing, It never goes out. I have suits that are, this suits over 20 years old. Um, by, by good, by quality, it's good to look good. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But we must use discretion. So that's the positive, dressed with modesty and with discretion. And then he comes to the negative, and he says, uh, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, right off, I've already said this, but Paul is not talking about a woman dressing well and attractively. He's not here being opposed to moderate use of jewelry or, or makeup or nice dresses. Uh, that uh, a woman should want to be as attractive as she can for God's glory, uh, for her husband. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. When I first moved to Greenville and I would meet a young lady in public, say at the bank or something like that, and she was really well-dressed, moderate makeup, some jewelry, I said, you went to Bob Jones, didn't you? She said, yes, because their freshman year, they taught them how to dress attractively like a lady. So Paul is not opposed to that. And I encourage all women to be as attractive for their husbands as they can. It's very important not to get dumpy. Um, but what Paul's talking about was something that went on again in the first century. The wealthy women, would it's not braids he's worried about, it's, they would braid into their hair gold and different expensive uh, jewels. And this hairdo then they would wear, and rich women did it, and also uh, prostitutes did it as well, though. Um, And then they would have all this expensive, pearls were very expensive in the first century, all this expensive uh, jewelry. So what Paul is saying is don't dress in a way that shows off your wealth. Don't become ostentatious as you come. Dress attractively, but don't, uh, don't flaunt it. So again it 's not wrong if if someone has a uh, a three hundred dollar dress that 's between them and, and the lord, uh, but don 't come like Minnie Pearl with the price tag hanging down yeah' you know, Minnie Pearl it was, but anyway, she was the country singer always had the price tag hanging down from her hat uh, with the price tag hanging down or talking about it. no be discreet but don 't show off because again there'll be we want in the church this wide range of uh, of society we want to mingle with the with the poor and the middle class and the wealthy, and we don't want to make distinctions then as James teaches us that would cause uh, one class of people to feel inferior or put off. And so he says to uh, not to do not to do those things, not to show off uh, their wealth, with their jewelry or their costly garments. Before we leave this verse, I I want to point out one thing to you. In comparing Scripture with Scripture, we have to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 about hair coverings in light of 1 Timothy 2. If 1 Corinthians 11 was a universal commandment that a woman was to wear, and it wasn't a doily, it was a veil, is to wear a veil, then Paul wouldn't need to write this, would he? Nobody would know what was in your hair. You wouldn't even have to fix your hair that morning to go to church. You could just put on your veil. So clearly, we come from this scripture, comparing scripture with scripture, and scripture doesn't contradict itself. Paul teaches us here um, that we interpret that passage in light of a passage written for the church to govern us in every age of the church's life until Christ returns. So he wants women to dress, to adorn themselves with the proper adornment, expresses that positively, to do so modestly and discreetly, negatively he says not with uh, wearing your wealth in your hair or pearls or costly garments. Now he moves to the heart. Talked about the woman's deportment, her appearance, but now he moves to her heart. Uh, In verses 10 and 11, but rather by means of good works as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, you could say, well, good works are outward, yes, but good works must flow from the heart. A work is only a good work, as we read in our Confession of Faith, when it is on the basis of God's Word, by faith in Christ. uh, Chapter 16 of the Confession, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren during the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto. And having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. That's what Paul's talking about here. These works that are according to God's word that flow out of the heart of the person who is resting in Christ Jesus. We further see that connection when he says to do good works as is proper that word is fitting for a woman making a claim, a promise or profession of godliness. So Paul is saying here the woman who has stood before uh, the elders of the church, who stood before the congregation and professed her faith in Christ Jesus, there is a certain manner of behavior that should come out of her heart. She has professed in her profession of faith a godliness. That she wants to honor the Lord from her heart, to walk and live according to His commandments, to have true piety. And so these good works then are the things that come out of the heart of the woman who has professed faith in Christ who longs for godliness, which is what you're saying in your profession of faith. So... Some of you did it two weeks ago. Others of you are going to do it next week. And this is is what we're saying, is that we want to please the Lord. We want to live and walk in a a godly uh, manner. Paul has in mind probably one particular class, though, of good works that would relate to women, and that is those works of charity within the body of Christ. Remember Dorcas, who Peter heals in Acts chapter. Uh, in um, verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continued. So deeds of kindness and charity. So P- Peter comes to visit them. And in verse 39, when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. The very women who were benefiting from her largesse, from her benevolence, were the women now showing. See, those are the good works that come out of female piety, these works of charity, these works of, of mercy, these works of alleviating the pain and sorrow of those around us, both in the church and in the world. These are the things that should mark uh, a godly woman. Character should should be um, manifested in one who is is tender-hearted and and compassionate and uh, reaches out to those around her with compassion and sympathy. According to her gifts, some of you probably can't make tunics, but anyway, uh, the principle is there, isn't it? The godly woman is one who's going to, from the heart, do the good works, particularly, and this is important, I'm going to come back to this, particularly in ministering to the material uh, needs of those around her, as well as the brokenness and emotional needs of those around her. But also, in, in verse 11, something of a bridge between her role in the congregation and her character. And so I'm going to start with her character here in verse 11. In addition to being one who has a heart that does good works, you'll see that a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now he's moving on to where it's going to become more controversial. He says he wants a woman to learn. That's the first thing. Some people have written recently say that well you know men would hold a position of uh, complementarianism in the church discourage women studying theology no no way at all we want women to learn we want women to read good books most of us want wives with whom we can have intelligent conversations about things that we've read and things that we're thinking and what they're thinking as we grow together no there's there's nothing nothing in this contrary of having a woman with a great mind who seeks according to her gifts and abilities to furbish that mind. Uh, But notice he says it's to be in submissiveness. And he's laying the foundation of what he's going to say, and that is, I'm getting ready to tell you that you must be humble in your learning. You must be humble in your learning. Because one of the things that we hear, been hearing it for a number of years now, well, we are trained, we need a place at the table. We've studied theology, you must allow us a place to teach. And I think that's going against what Paul is saying here when he says, I want them to learn, but I want them to learn in silence and in submission. Now, that prepares the way for where he's going when he speaks here about silence. So the woman is to have this character that Peter refers to as a quiet and gentle spirit. She's not to draw attention to herself. She's not to be the center of attention, not to be the center of the conversation. No, she is to have a certain... Demureness about herself, uh, able to enter in and to carry her own weight in conversation to the degree she wants to, but not to dictate it. I remember uh, a lady we were with on one of our trips overseas. I don't think she ever stopped talking. And uh, very authoritatively. Last year she divorced her husband. Really, I wasn't surprised after spending a few weeks. It was very sad. It breaks my heart. But uh, no. Quiet and gentle spirit, learn in submission. There's the same thing. There's there's a humility that must mark all of us. But Paul points it out particularly in terms of the things that you know and the things about which you want to speak. Well, having seen something of her character, we go on to look at her role in verses 12 through 15. We're going to see two negatives and the grounds, the two grounds for those negatives, and then the positive of what she is to do. So he says negatively in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So this quietness, you see, is taking place now in a context of the church. It's not that she's not having conversations with her friends, her husband, and such as that. But now he's focusing primarily at corporate worship, But because obviously the good works he's talked about here go beyond corporate worship. He's talking about the woman's role in corporate worship, but also more broadly in the life of the church. And he has two negatives in the first place that do not allow her to teach a man. Teach a man. And so Paul says, I want her to learn, but I want her to learn with a submissive spirit and not to overthrow the God-ordained authority structure that is revealed to us in Scripture. So obviously, this means she should not be in the pulpit, but she should do no formal teaching in the life of the congregation because that does bear authority. Now, the authority that Paul forbids is more than that, but there is authority involved in teaching. So she doesn't teach from the pulpit. She doesn't teach, should not teach a men's Bible study or a mixed Bible study, because Paul is the one who says, I do not allow her to teach a man. This was not invented by some 21st century complementarian. No, this is the revelation of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Now, he's not ruling really out her teaching. She's learning in all submission, and God has given her structured roles then for that teaching. Of course, at home. What does Paul say about Timothy? I think it's 2 Timothy 3 that he learned from his grandmother and his mother. They, they taught him the truths of God at home. Are the passages that we read in Titus chapter 2 part of the responsibility of the older woman, either chronologically but also spiritually, so they have to be older chronologically, is to teach younger women how to learn to grow and be pious, godly women. So in the church, we should be making room for women to teach our children and for women to be teaching other women, but not to be teaching men. Nor does this rule out. Um, The reason I use formal, it does not rule out informal interaction. We learn from one another. I learn from my wife as much as she learns from me. Um, Aquila and Priscilla, called only in that order once, rest of the time Priscilla and Aquila, would have people in their home. Now, they had a, a house church. They, they mentored uh, Apollos, who became a, a great preacher and theologian of the gospel. And that's good. It's good for us to sit around and learn from each other. And women should contribute to that as much as men do. So it's not that we don't teach in the church. It's teach women and children. We can teach informally, which is a very important part of Christian fellowship. Nor exercise authority. Now, the authorized version translates this usurp authority, but if you look up the meaning of usurp when they use it in the Early 17th century, it doesn't have the connotation it has today. Today it means to get authority that doesn't belong to you. But Paul's not simply saying don't reach for authority that doesn't belong to you. He's saying, I do not allow a woman to exercise, is a better translation of the word here, authority in the life of the church. Which, of course, uh, keeps her from exercising any kind of office in the church. This is one of the texts that we use then, why we do not have women uh, elders or deacons, or surely not women ministers, not to teach, nor are they to exercise authority over men. It's often another argument for why women do not participate in a leading role in public worship, because every leading role in public worship is an act of authority. Representing God to the people, the people to God. And so she's not to exercise authority. Well, how many times have you and I heard, well, that was in Ephesus and there were particular problems there. Or that was Paul's culture as a Jew when he was was coming along. Uh, But that's not binding on us now. But Paul, by the Holy Spirit, anticipated that. And so he gives the two grounds in verses 13 and 14. I, I'll remind you, he gives a broader statement about this in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, where he says the same thing to the church uh, in Corinth. <clears throat> in verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. But are, now How can you read scripture, lead in prayer, and not speak? Anyway, uh, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in the church. Now here he's talking about speaking within the context of corporate worship. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? In other words, he's laying down a principle for all of the churches. She's not to speak in the church. Perhaps I should have when I talked about not teaching to address First Corinthians 11, where he says that If women prophesy, they're to do so with their heads covered. Well, prophesy uh, can mean simply participate in the acts of public worship. The word is used that way in Scripture. Um, there are cases of women prophesying, but there's never a case of women prophesying in public worship. They prophesied on private occasions, private homes, both in the Old Testament and in uh, the New Testament. But moreover, we live now in a day when that particular extraordinary gift has ceased. So yes, God gave the gift of prophecy to certain women in the early church, but that gift is no longer in the church. And so we don't try to get around women prophesying uh, by saying, well, Paul said how they were, teaching that they would, could prophesy. Well, if they did, it was not in public worship. Uh, and it was only in a temporary time in the history of the church. With respect to rule, we often hear about um, Deborah. Calvin has a very good response to that, that uh, God who makes these rules is free in his own sovereign good pleasure at times to overwrite them for other holy purposes. And here he was at the time of judges. The whole church was an absolute anarchy, and God at that point is chastening the church by doing this, and that was his pleasure. But it's not the norm. We don't try to prove principles from exceptions, We prove principles from the biblical commandments. And Paul says, I want her silent learning and submission, not teaching a man or exercising authority. But in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, according to the law. Well, here we find out what he meant by the law. He's talking about the very first book of the law. The law was the Torah. Uh, It also words used refer to the Psalms. But here he's referring to Genesis, Chapters two and three. We read Genesis chapter two. So the first ground is, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. It takes us back. Well, in Genesis two seven, Adam was formed by God. That's really the Greek word that she used here, created, uh, translated, uh, created. Adam and Eve were both made in the image of God, but they were made in a specific order and manner. Now, it's not just chronology. It's not just that Adam was made first. It's how Adam was made first and how Eve was made second. It's the principle that Paul is going after here. Adam was made in a distinctly unique way by God as a singular being from the dust of the ground with a God-breathed soul. God then, having taught Adam that he needed a helper corresponding to him, a partner, a helper corresponding to his needs, made Eve from the side of Adam. And part of this was to protect the singular federal headship of Adam, but part of it was to establish this very important biblical principle, because God is making a helper. He's making a partner, and thus he takes her from Adam. She's to fulfill Adam, but Adam is her head. She is to be in submission then to Adam, and that's the principle that Paul establishes here, both for the family and for the church. Now, it's interesting that he lays that out for the family in Ephesians 5. Here it's just women and men. He doesn't use the word husbands and wives. No, he's talking about the authority structure of the church. And that by very creation, I'm going to use a word there's an ontological difference with respect to the authority structure of the church. And Paul says that is not just the order, but the manner in which Eve was made. I hope you see this. Made from his side to be a helper, according to him, a partner to aid him in his calling. That's the first reason. second reason, then, is a bit more dark. In verse 14... And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now here he's taking us to the next chapter. And actually he's simply quoting Eve when she's making her excuses uh, to God. And she says in verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now the word that Paul uses is utterly deceived. Now Adam, Adam sinned willfully. Adam wasn't tricked Eve was tricked. A part of Paul's argument here was that she removed herself from her husband's headship and by doing so exposed herself to a level of temptation that by nature she was not equipped to deal with. Why God, put her under her head to protect her. So she was deceived because she didn't submit to her husband, but tried to deal with Satan one-on-one. Adam could have done that, just as Christ did in the wilderness. Um, Eve did not do that. I mean, Adam was more reprehensible because he just willfully sinned. But she was utterly, absolutely deceived. Now, I think what Paul is saying here is is that um, with respect to theological issues, a woman out from under male headship, is more prone to being deceived theologically. I'm not saying that men are not deceived theologically. There's plenty of false teachers who are men, but just as Adam's sin was different, their sin is different as well. And again, this is ontological. It's what we are. Uh, as the head, Adam must, the man must be strong-willed. He must be strongly rational. Uh, he must be bold and straightforward. By nature, most women are tender, intuitive, sympathetic, and compassionate. One nature is not better than the other. She's a helper corresponding to his needs. He needed that, and she needed him. When she divorced herself from him, she collapsed in deception. The principle is there, I think. When we, as ladies, step out from under the authority of our husband, out from the authority of our elders, begin to do our own theological thinking, we are exposing ourselves to a level of temptation that uh, often will be more than we can bear. Now, I'm not saying that women cannot do good theology or study the Bible or whatever. I'm simply saying that Paul says here, she removed herself from the authority of her husband she exposed herself in an unprotected way. And so, even when women do teach in the church, their material should be reviewed by the elders, whether they wrote it themselves whether they use a book that somebody else has written, male or female, the elders need to review that book. When I took our little church in Mississippi, it was a conservative church, as they were in those days. Um, and I, uh, I one of my early projects was to go in and to try to organize and clean out the church library. I was appalled by what the women had been studying because that was one of the ways the old Southern Presbyterian Church perverted the churches. It was through the women's Bible studies. Now they knew their Scripture, and so the women were reading this material, being deceived by it, and leading the churches then in ways they shouldn't even be doing. But that's what happened. So. Uh, Elders must always be aware of these things as well. We've been negative. Now I want to come to the positive, which is glorious, but some will probably push back here. And that is, what is the role of women? Notice Paul uses the word but in verse 15. Women will be preserved, and actually it is she will be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. it's a very complex argument here. I think to some degree we have to read between the lines of what's going on. Paul is beginning with Eve. Eve was deceived. God comes to her, though, and even though he says there'll be pain in having children and that she will resist being in submission to her husband, that through her, he is going to bring a godly seed. That the children that she bears, by God's grace, will be part of that godly seed that will stand over against uh, the seed of the world or the seed of Satan. So we eventually have the, the um, sons of God and uh, uh, and the daughters of men, or is it the other way around? Anyway... Um, We've got these two classes. We're not talking about angels, um, the the sons of men and the daughters of God. We're not talking there about uh, angels. We're talking about uh, the wicked line that grew up through Cain and Lamech and such, and the righteous line. But you see, God promised her that he was going to use her now to undo that which she had contributed and thus, Adam and Eve believed this promise of God, and that's why Adam named her Eve, uh, because he said she's the mother of the living. But of course, in that promise of a godly seed is the promise of the Savior. This is the first intimation of, of the virgin conception, because a woman doesn't have a seed. <laughs> you know, he in the singular, her seed in the singular, is going to destroy. Satan in the head, obviously a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that through women, through a woman, the godly seed would develop, and in that godly seed, through one particular woman, the Virgin Mary, God is going to bring the Savior. And then, as it has narrowed the Savior, now it expands out wider than ever. But it's happening to the mothers of Israel. It's happening as God has promised Eve in Genesis chapter 3. That's what Paul is referring to here, that the woman is going to have this key role in the church by bearing children, that she is going to contribute profoundly to the growth and nurture and strength of the church by her gifts of being a mother. Now, I know that in God's providence, not all women marry, and in God's providence, not uh, all married women have children, but um, most do. Most marry, most have children. And those that don't, this still is a very important part, as I'm going to talk about, about the woman being the nurturer. Just because a woman hasn't married, or hasn't had children, doesn't take away from the fact of this role that Paul is developing here. But read this interesting thing in Hendrickson on this verse. Not by way of preaching to adults, but by way of bearing children as a woman attain real happiness to salvation. The path that leads to salvation is ever that obedience to God's ordinances. It is his will that the woman should influence mankind from the bottom up. That is, by way of the child, not from the top down. That is, by the way of the man. Now, I want you to get that. It is his will that the woman should influence mankind from the bottom up. That is, by way of the child, not from the top down. That is, not by the way of man. She must choose to do that for which God, by creation ordinance, she is naturally equipped, both physically and spiritually, You must reach your goal by way of or through her childbearing. Now you notice it's not childbearing as the end in itself. Paul brings us now back to the gospel in Christ in the last clause. If, and here's where he goes from the singular, uh, uh, she will be preserved to they, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. There's no hear fact that by genetics or anything else, the world will be saved through childbirth. No, you see, it is the godly woman, but then he describes her. She continues in faith, that resting in Christ alone for salvation. She continues in that love that Paul says in the previous chapter is the goal of all of our teaching, love for God and, and love for man, as we read in our reading of the law. She is to pursue that sanctification without which no one should see the Lord daily, dying to sin and being ever renewed in the image of Christ. And she is to do this with self-restraint. But the word self-restraint takes us back to verse 9, and that is the word um, discreetly, with wisdom, with prudence. She, but obviously we all recognize that this is the way of salvation, not just for women. But this is This is the gospel for all of us. This is the call of God tonight to each one of you and to... Your children, to you children, to be sure that you know that you're believing in Jesus. And because you believe in Jesus, you love and you want to be holy and godly. You want to develop prudence and sensibility and righteousness. So, the principle that Paul establishes here when she says she's going to be saved through childbearing is that by nature, God has made all women to be nurturers. By nature. God has made all women to be nurturers, whether they marry or not. God has created them, part of the creative difference that goes back to what we have in Genesis 2, what we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This then unpacks for us the woman's role in the life of the church. It is the same role that she would have at home. It's basically a nurturing role. It is a domestic role. And so we go back to things that we've seen. Not only does she adorn herself, but she adorns the church. She adorns our homes. She makes them pleasant and inviting. She is the one that will make this church building pleasant and inviting inside and outside. She's the one that will create the atmosphere of hospitality, of that peace and that quiet that should be part of a godly home and part of the life and fellowship of a church. She's the one who then will be a tender uh, looking out for those who are in need, noticing those who are hurting. She's the one that will correct us when we become bullheaded about something or too stubborn and press on with something without considering uh, the consequences. She's the one then that will teach her own children and the children of the church. And then as she grows in godliness, she'll teach other women. You see, by creation, she's a nurturer. That doesn't mean that she's less intelligent than her husband or the elder or the preacher doesn't mean that she should not study and search the scriptures and read very good books, but then she channels herself. It's a truism, It's basically what Hendrickson said, but the, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's so true. Machen said about his students when he started teaching at Westminster that he knew more theology from the life of his mother, learning the catechism, than these college graduates knew who were coming to seminary. It is, as it's been called, a high and holy calling. And so the, the woman in the church is to develop godliness as she learns uh, submission and as she uh, exercises her nurturing office. This is the character we want for you women. It's the character that we husbands continue to develop for our wives. It's the character that we want to develop for our daughters, see them grow and develop uh, in the ways that Paul spells out here in his text. And it's what we want for our church. You know, a church needs the nurturer just as much as the church needs a preacher our elders our deacons or other men. We'd be an imbalanced church if we did not have the nurturer. And so, in all this discussion today of role of women in the church, let's don't stop with what they shouldn't do. It's important, and today we're being forced to deal with that. Let's be sure we've opened the door to what they should do. And to be sure that we are empowering women in the proper way, empowering our women to be nurturers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that... Your word speaks to us of your principles and ways that would push back against the culture in Paul's day, ways that push back against the culture in our day. We ask, Lord, that you will give us all uh, submissive spirits to sit here tonight and to learn in silence, to search the scriptures to see if these things are true, and if so, Lord, then to seek to structure our lives and our churches accordingly that you will be honored and glorified, that the church will be whole and beautiful and helpful and sound. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.